0: Edition.
1: But you did. <laughs> <laughs> Edition of Spin Cycle. I just uh, ran into the studio. And, literally ran. <laughs> yeah, literally ran. And then went ran. into full radio <laughs> mode. So professional.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> 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 well, thank you. Uh, we are broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, lands for which sovereignty has never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I am Jess Lily, and back in the studio... This week with Cracker Reporter Charlie Lewis and we are blessed to have another guest today in the studio. It's rare, they're usually on the phone. Contributing editor of The Monthly, Rachel Withers. Hey Charlie and Rachel, how's it going? Good. Good.
0: Yeah, I think there's a there's a there's a, there's a real like uh, thrilling tightrope vibe to tonight where everyone's a little bit weird and elsewhere. So we're going to see how this goes. Um, but there was something very um, yeah lively and kind of like like theatre about you running through and getting on the mic straight away. It was great. And I
2: found out 20 minutes before we went on air that someone's made a, a impersonate an Instagram account impersonating me. So
0: oh,
1: if
2: you're listening, no. that's not me.
1: <laughs> Are you? Do you have an Instagram account?
2: I do, and they've just replicated my photo and my name oh, wow. and oh, creepy. Yeah, and so I'm getting all these messages and I'm just trying to
1: focus on oh, the microphone. Oh, that, <laughs> that's so creepy. Um well I've um that was as much as I've prepared for things
0: <laughs> <laughs> So
1: you guys are ready to talk some news tings. <laughs> no, I mean there's there's a lot going on. Um, obviously, so much has come out of the report into the Robo Royal Commission. Um, there's a by-election this week, which always excites me. Something to do on Saturday night. <laughs> yeah, yep,
0: thing to keep an eye on.
1: Yep. There's um, obviously
0: been huge international news with the ongoing saga of the Sun's reporting on yeah, and until recently unnamed kind of uh, weird, BBC. Isn't it? Uh, reporter, which we should get into a bit later.
1: Yes, and I have um, just been listening to, uh, on the way here, the um, the Full Story podcast talking to, with Chris Masters and Nick McKenzie um, talking about being Robert Smith and I just thought there were some parallels um, between that and the kind of fallout of the Royal Commission, these kind of white men in power thinking...
0: Thinking nothing will ever touch them. Thinking
1: nothing will ever touch them and certain quarters of the media um, really attracted to the idea of maintaining the power that belongs to to them, the proximity to power. So we will be talking about that sort of stuff tonight. But, um, Rachel, you've got um, an amazing piece in the monthly at the moment. Go and teal
2: Yeah, I mean, I I spent about three months thinking about teals, you know, day and night, weekdays and weekends. So (laughs) very glad to have this one finally out in the world.
0: Um, What was it that you... So it's called The Colour of Money, and basically it's the idea of the teals who are um, uh, sort of socially progressive, you would argue, but in um, traditionally very liberal-friendly seats who are kind of representing quite fiscally well-off kind of electorates. What was it that you were kind of, I guess, in the broadest possible sense, what were you trying to find out?
2: I mean, at the start, I wasn't sure what I was trying (laughs) to find out. Um, The piece was to mark one year since the teal wave, as they called it, um, when we saw six of these teal independents take Liberal seats all at the same time. Um, And so I was lucky that my very chill boss was letting, willing to let me sort of go on a journey and, and figure mm-hmm. out what it was that I wanted to to say about them and, and ask them. Um, and I guess w- what I started noticing um, was that th- these are supposedly um, socially progressive, economically conservative mm-hmm. independents. That's kind of where the teal comes from. It's meant to be the the mixture of the liberal blue and the environmental green, like, blue with a touch of green oh, um
1: I did not know that yeah. I was today years old
2: when I <laughs> found out but. I mean I, it started because uh Zali Stegall used the color first but then mm. it just became such an effective shorthand for a, that reason
1: then a branding agency came on board and needed to have a <laughs> rationale
2: I mean a lot of them said oh it's because it's the color of the ocean um but no I think it, it really describes what they were and it's also why you saw the I think why you saw the a bunch of moderate liberals who were challenged by teals starting to use that colouring because that is what they were supposed to be. They were supposed to be, you know, liberals on economics but much more moderate on the social issues and, of course, um, they weren't actually speaking up for those social issues, which is why they lost those seats. Um, That aside, I noticed that the um, seven teals um, who I define as – we've got Zali, who was the original uh, in Warringah – along with Allegra Spender, Kylie Tink, Sophie Scomps in Sydney, Monique Ryan and Zoe Daniel here in Melbourne and Kate Cheney over in Perth. Mm. Um, They vary. They're very different, but generally they were slightly more economically progressive than you would have expected for women holding... Very, very wealthy seats, um,
0: mm-hmm. and, and usually, I mean, and, and for the most part, as you say, they're not a monolith. But for the most part, coming from a reasonable amount of privilege in their own right.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, like you've got you've got sort of Allegra Spender and Kate Cheney who are part of Liberal
1: yeah. dynasties. dynasties. Yeah, 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 because there was the sort of cynical um, projection that they would. Um, Pretty much toe the liberal line on many things other than you know on on most economic things, whereas sort of social issues they 'd be a little bit more progressive or environmental sustainability issues,
2: yeah, and I mean they've been I would say on some things to the left of labour on economics, so job seeker um, they were they were <laughs> really advocating for an increase to job seeker, um, all of them signed a letter from Acos calling for a substantial increase. Um, Stage three tax cuts, they're not all on board with scrapping them, but I would say more than half. Um, the superannuation tax concessions that the Liberals lost their minds over when <laughs> Labor said, you know, $3 million is probably enough. <laughs>
0: was this the um, uh, Zoe Daniels' predecessor in um, Goldstein, uh, the Venerable Tim Wilson, in his... <laughs> his, uh, well, It wasn't actually an inquiry... Was it an inquiry into... Oh, that was Franking credit. I'm, I'm terribly sorry. Oh, yeah, That's, he, he uh, yeah. really
2: ran that one. I mean, yeah. that that is what, though, um, I'd say that these moderate Liberals had become was sort of um, really hardline Conservatives on economics. Um, and what I found from looking at these electorates, um, talking to people I bumped into at, at Teal events, talking to the Teals themselves, is that the voters in these electorates didn't just... for many of them who did shift from the Liberals to the Teals, which let's remember it's not everyone, Mm -hmm. it's about one-fifth of the Teal vote, Mm. Um, but a lot of them were pretty fed up with the way the Liberals had been behaving on economics as well as on social issues. It's this kind of like um, downward envy, um, you know, class-based politics, punching down... um, that is not working for teal electorates. That is kind of the same aspect um, to to Samaras, who did the polling for Climate 200, which in turn did a lot of um, data and provided a lot of support to these campaigns. Cos said, you know, this kind of stage three tax cuts, rah, rah, they're going to take your, you know, franking credits. That doesn't work in these wealthy electorates. Mm-hmm. That, that is the same as rocking up with a lump of coal to, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, certain... Um, what we might call the the noblesse ob- oblige, who who consider themselves generous, you know, wealthy kind of, but but benevolent wealthy people.
0: And I suppose the un the unspoken question um, that is sort of I think bubbling away underneath any interrogation of the teal phenomenon and and and, and how it works is. Does this thing have legs? Could it hmm. actually be a an ongoing, powerful sect of parliament for not just one term, but maybe several? What, uh, did you have any come away with any thoughts on that? I mean, because obviously, Cos talks about, say, the generational churn and things like that—that that people who vote liberal are possibly literally, you know, dying out.
2: Yeah. Look, I was I was really interested in that. Um, as a topic it was too big to get at I think in a monthly essay Mm -hmm. but I did talk to a lot of them about it and I do think um they are really they really do represent their electorates they really um are in touch with them they really do speak for them and I think um they do need to be cautious on not going too far on some of these um economic issues and I would say some of them um if you read the piece it goes teal by teal and um Some of them I don't think are going to act on these um, inequality issues, but some of them are and I think the question is how far are their electorates willing to let them go? And, you know, as long as they bring their electorates with them, I think that they have the potential to stay in power for a really long time and do really interesting things and talk about things that the major parties can't talk about. And I think that is their real... Um, benefit to our democratic system is that they're not bound by promises or party lines or um, you know whatever it is that stops Labor from even whispering the word um, negative gearing. Um, yeah, yeah. So they're, they're a phenomenon that I think is going to be with us for some time. Maybe not
1: all of them will make it through the next election, but I I think most of them will. Did you find it all, um, I mean, there was obviously the drama with Monique Ryan and and Sally Rugg, and and Monique Ryan has possibly sort of been the more public of them uh, or attracted a lot of media attention in the last year. Was there a bit of a hard landing in any way for some of them? I mean, what's their sort of learning curve been? do you think, in the role as politicians?
2: I mean, I I understand it was a very steep learning curve for all of them. Um, One of them told me if in the first three months there'd been an exit shoot, she would have taken it. Mm. Um, And she's glad that there wasn't because she's (laughs) she's got through that bit. But, you know, it it was tough. Um, I think, you know... For, for Monique Ryan in particular, um, she's been probably the most high profile mm. mm-hmm. for good and bad reasons. Um, and I think she's been the most outspoken on things like stage three tax cuts and, and superannuation and job seeker. But um, if you take a look at Kooyong, that is actually probably the teal seat that is the safest for a teal to hold on to. She was relying on liberal voters disaffecting from the Liberal Party, the least of any of them, because that that electorate is changing. I mean, they're all changing. The Generation Z is coming. Um, The kind of apartment blocks are going up in these electorates. Renters are moving in. But Kuyong in particular, because of Swinburne University, um, is Mm. really, really moving left. I mean, that nearly fell green before it went teal. Mm. Um, And so I think she's actually in a good position if she can read her electorate properly um someone like Allegra Spender who is probably the more the most difficult to read in this uh, from from the interviews I I did um and really the one who wasn't into talking about uh reforming the system um she's in a more complicated position because she represents a very stratified electorate she's got the Harborside mansions um but then of course Um, she's also got a lot of renters, half Mm. of Wentworth rents, and it's actually one of the highest proportions of people in rental stress in the country because Mm. they're quite nice houses that are being rented there. Um, and so she arguably needs to speak to some of those renters, but that is also going to upset her, her wealthier constituents. Mm.
0: In uh, in in Malcolm Turnbull's old seat, yes, less, Mr. Harper, as <laughs> I mentioned himself. Um, without wishing to, you know, without without getting you any new trouble or having you um, betray any confidences, I suppose one of the things that we hint at and the thing that we always talk about on this show is kind of the the, the media angle on this. And I, uh, one of the great positives, I think, most people would would probably agree about the Teals is that they are not party politicians with a party line. Did that translate into any? surprising candour in your interviews with them or did they say things that you weren't expecting them to or did they veer into different interesting areas?
2: Yeah, I mean they were really – I would say they were very natural um, and you could tell they weren't necessarily – you know, biting their tongue in the way that media a party trained. politician would be. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, once or twice I'd be speaking to the one of them, and they'd actually say, "Let me think about that before I say that." Or, <laughs> yeah. or oh God, my media advisor would kill me if I if she heard me say that. But you know, they were they were quite candid um, on inequality and on the fact that it was a problem. Um, you know. Some of them were more cautious than others about naming actual policies that they would be willing to to go near, um, but you know Kylie Tink, for example, she listed off negative gearing capital gains tax, you know um, real like she she was willing to talk about taxing wealth mm. in a way that I would never have expected from any politician, least of all a
1: politician representing one of the ten wealthiest seats in the country. And were they willing to sort of talk about? I don't know if it was, whether you covered it, but there's culture in in Parliament.
2: Um, we got, we did do that a little bit, and I think most of them feel it, it has improved um, due to them, and, and they've been told by people who were there before them and after them that it has improved. But I, I think, like any of us who do watch Question Time every day, can see that it yeah. that a way part to go. <laughs> at least really hasn't um, hasn't. Hasn't got to the standard we need it to get to, um, but I would say what's interesting is that they all um, feel that they are in a really good position when it comes to negotiating with the government. They feel like the government actually, on most issues, does give them the time of day and is willing to talk to them. Um, maybe in a way that they're not so willing to do with the Greens. Um, I mean, they do, but they it's a bit more there's a bit more argy bargy there. But they they really are at least according to um, the Teals, interested in having the Teals on side because that sort of lends um, kind of uh, social capital, as I put it in the piece, to the government's policies because, you know, people like the Teals and, Mm. like, Mm. they're not they're not kingmakers, their votes don't matter, but it is nice to have their votes on, on climate issues and um, we saw that with the, the climate bill. And presumably
0: mm. part of that comes down to just sheer political strategising. The The seat of Melbourne, for example, is one that the, the Labour Party feels is theirs by right. The, the, the seats... The seat of Curtin, for example, in Perth, or any number of actually the, the ones that the teals snapped up, have never been within um, spitting distance of being a Labour seat. So I suppose they maybe think they've got less to lose by, by being seen to cooperate with them.
2: Yeah, look, I mean, I have heard that Anthony Albanese sort of said to them in a, in a meeting once, um, you know, you guys are great, no more. Like, this is good. Um, And so I think there was a concern for a while from Labor that they might come after their seats next. But, you know, we really are talking about a response to the Liberal Party when we talk about the Teals. Mm. Um, And, you know, we haven't seen the Teals pick up any Labor seats at state elections. Um,
0: We've
1: tried. Was yeah. there any sense as well that, you know, I think we we did see from, say, Kathy McGowan in Indi that that um, success was turned into not a formula but it was certainly, you know, observed really closely and it was then, you know, she was incredibly um, open about how she wanted to then help other independents yeah. um, win their seats as well and obviously... The, the precursor to the Teal movement, was there a sense among them that they were um, sort of interested in in helping bring more people up or are they very focused on their own seats?
2: I mean they're focused on representing their own seats but there is a real sense of, of camaraderie um, between them. You know, they, they all credit Cathy, um, uh, you know, for sort of leading the way with the voices of model mm. that they all used and mm. they're all very willing to help other up-and-coming candidates. Um, One really interesting media story I got from Kylie Tink was that she was actually one of the first to announce of the current crop of teals and she said she she had this, like, early interview um, and she felt like she really, really stuffed it up Um, and she felt responsible for the entire movement because she felt like she was the first putting herself out there in, like, the Sydney Morning Herald or something Um, and that it was really on her to to nail it so that others could step forward. Um, and, you know, she was speaking to Cathy McGowan throughout the time. But, um, yeah, she felt a lot of pressure to be kind of a standard bearer for this idea. Um, and, of course, she did win and, and as did... Uh, five of the others so Um, she, she obviously didn't stuff it up
1: just sounds culturally the complete opposite of what we've heard about you know in parliament in terms of the hostility and you know especially around um gender and experiences of discrimination and you know i mean it it sounds positive, but um, that's not. There's a lot more in the article, so everyone really needs to pick <laughs> yeah. up the monthly <laughs> <laughs> to read Rachel's um, current piece, uh, "The Color of Money."
2: Radio three triple
1: This week there has been a lot of talk about uh, robo-debt after Commissioner Catherine Holmes um, presented the report into the Royal Commission into the robo-debt scheme. And among many other things, the media um, came up for scrutiny. There's been a couple of good – well, one piece and one sort of podcast series um, that have illuminated that. Josh Taylor in The Guardian has – written um, a piece about it, how the coalition collaborated with Friendly Media and also um, as part of Rick um, Morton's podcast series for 7am every morning this week. This morning's um, Rochelle Miller uh, interview, who was one of the media advisors to Alan Tudge while he was the minister for the Department of Human Services, was just very jaw-dropping. What were your thoughts, Rachel?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, Rochelle Miller has been so um, instrumental to helping us understand what was going on in the office of the then Minister, Alan Tudge. Um, And, I mean, part of the reason she speaks so candidly about this now um, and in the Royal Commission is because she has sort of made allegations um, against her former boss, um, as well, and, so, and mm. so sort of has split with the Liberal Party. They didn't support her. And so she is now very willing to speak out. Um, and she also says that she sort of has has learnt a lot of empathy from what happened to her. Um, but it has meant, I think, because of what unfortunately happened to her, we have a, an insight into what was going on in that office that we may not otherwise have. And the way that they constructed a media strategy specifically to destroy... Um, those speaking out in the media against robo debt.
1: Yeah, for someone so deft at spin, her she's has been incredibly candid, mm-hmm. like um, unbelievably <laughs> candid, really, about why decisions were made and and the kinds of stories they planted in the media, really, um, and how they how they did spin it.
2: And, and she doesn't come off well in this. No. Uh, I mean, you no. know, she her job was to basically create the quote-unquote counter-narrative, as she puts it, in the friendly media um, that would you know, undermine what was going on in
1: what she calls the left-wing media. Well, that was a really phenomenal part of that interview this morning when uh, I think, I guess it was like sort of December 16, 2016, Mm -hmm. January early 2017 was when the stories that had been um, gathered in social media that activists had helped support people tell and take to, you know, friendly journalists from that point of view Journalists who could see that there was something wrong and something going on, and there was also um, there were you know it wasn't just um, there was you know a sort of a groundswell, a bit of a movement that movement was occurring from activists to academics to a- a lawyers as well, helping get those stories out. Rochelle Miller really openly says um, we could see a pattern, and as far as we were concerned, it was left wing media that yeah. that was telling these stories that was willing to tell these stories so so we just went in with um you know they basically she basically just said yeah. they went in along ideological lines yeah, yeah. to discredit the media mm. as much as mm. the people whose stories they were telling yeah
0: and i think there's i mean there's 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 a, there's a lot of as you say there was a lot in that interview i mean and and there was that sort of sense of a a certain insouciance about it because she was like well it's so it's not that big a deal cuz centrists and, and the people who would vote yes. liberal probably don't, don't don't read the abc so it's you know we, we can just go to the places that we damage control yeah yeah. um and i think it is worth um even separate from miller's testimony and i think yeah there's there's a bit to get into with that as well just the 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 the, the report i mean the the royal commissions have such an incredible amount of power to compel departments to hand over information and and that's um they 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 took advantage of that in this case as as they as they as you'd expect so you have like incredibly specific, detailed accounts of just how the media was made complicit in this stuff. I mean, there's a, a media officer who emailed a, a colleague in the Department of Human Services and said, News Corp isn't interested in the line being run by left-leaning media, but is keen to hear the alternative view. As such, the focus will be in working with news to achieve this. And then within a few days, on the front page of The Australian, Simon Benson, their, their national affairs editor, has a piece that's talking about how it's actually – the the uh, the the fuss being kicked up over over RoboDead is actually a, an embarrassing Labour blunder because look at all these counter examples that actually show that that the the system is working just fine as it is and that people are actually being uh, charged debts that they genuinely do owe. The the other one and actually this 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 didn't require the Royal Commission to come to light. It was something that, that we knew about at the time because it was so unrepentant and blatant and out in the open was there was a blogger named Andy Fox who wrote a piece, an opinion piece for the Fairfax Papers, the then Fairfax Papers, now Nine Papers, um, essentially detailing her experience with Centrelink and, and with Robodet and and saying that she'd been terrorized by the department. Um, the department leaked her specific individual mm. personal information to another journalist at the same um at the same institution, who then wrote up a piece um, saying essentially that they thought that the department was being unfairly castigated. There's two two sides to this story. And I think, you know, I mean, you, you don't want to get too preachy, but there is that sense of I think anyone... Anyone who's been allowed themselves to be used that way by an arm of the state against an individual for, for, for who had the temerity to criticise the government, really, really has to reflect on you know what they got into this business. They didn't into. just
1: allow themselves to be used. They were all there were certain um, elements of the media who were clamouring for, mm, as Rochelle yeah. said, more colour. You know, tell us more about these people. What are they what you know? Tell us the gender, where they live, what they do, anything else you can give us about them. But you know, that stood out to me that there were you know, parts of the media that were hungry to push this narrative as far as they could. But the other thing was the pressure, the relentless pressure from Tudge. You know, the the thing that came out of this was, was that as the Minister, Minister for Human Services, this was his stepping stone. Mm-hmm. He wanted to get into Cabinet and he saw an opportunity through robo debt. Um, obviously it's a, a, as a cost-cutting exercise, that's, you know, a given, but also to increase his profile and so he demanded of his media advisers that they get him a front page a week. Yeah. You know, working in the media, what, do, what does that mean to you, Rachel, to, to have for a minister to have that demand of his media advisers? Like what, what does that mean on a day-to-day level? What are they doing?
2: I mean, it is just horrifying to think that the media is treated as sort of just the platform for someone like Alan Tudge, who at that point was a junior minister and was hoping to claw his way up into, like, a real ministry because he didn't consider this one a real one. Mm. I mean, you know, he wanted to get into Cabinet as well. Um, And the thought that the media was just there, what you know, the conservative media, because that's where they were placing these stories, was just there for him to potentially... um, Get a front page story, not to report the news, not to to seek to out the news account. of the day, yeah to hold mm-hmm. power to account um you know it was it was a a sort of a potential space for him to have a a front page story um and you know you hear from I think it's just so interesting hearing from Rochelle Miller about how all that works, um and to have someone so so candidly mm. explain it as you say um mm-hmm. you know apparently. Tudge would would do some positive media or you know, media that was positive for him, and he'd be getting texts from his colleagues, like, Oh yeah, good job, mate. Yeah,
0: good front page. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, and then it's all just, you know, patting each other on the back for getting the best possible media spot they can get.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, it does it's it's a very um it's emblematic of of sort of of the Morrison government in particular, although a lot of this happened under under Malcolm Turnbull, and I think he has sort of really <laughs> skated under the, a lot of the mm-hmm. coverage of this stuff. Uh, to be, to be, and to be fair, there is stuff where, where you know, the, 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 the other thing that the Royal Commission kind of revealed was that when Turnbull, who had been led to believe that this was a legal thing, was finding out that it wasn't, he was calling Tudge back from holidays to kind of get some answers. So there is, you know... There is some mitigation there, but still, um, yeah. But I,
1: everyone, like, oh no, I didn't know. We yeah, all thought it was yeah, legal. Yeah, the yeah, lawyers yeah. thought it was mm. okay. Mm. You know, and, it's and, just and, and, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just what you do. You stand up for your mates, Stuart Robinson. It's just like, what the? Yeah, yeah. Like someone and, and, takes and, Michelle Miller is at least taking responsibility uh, yeah. for what mm. she did. Mm. You know,
0: and, and, and that, you're right and that, that goes to um, an incredibly degraded uh, and a very deliberately degraded public service as well. The people who. Um, who are tasked with giving Frank and fearless advice to ministers have been cowed out of that particular mm. job. But one thing that I thought didn't get as much attention um, as it probably should have was that Jane Holton, who's a sort of lifelong senior public servant who worked, I mean, way back, first came to notice actually during the Children Overboard scandal. So she's, she's been around. Um, essentially, she was saying the real problem is freedom of information if if the reason that that the public servants are so cowed in giving Frank and Phyllis uh, advice is because some horrible journalists might get a hold of it and make them look bad. Is, it,
1: is it that or is it also that the sort of we, a lot of... Um,
0: no, it's not that at all. That's a horrible thing to say. Like, <laughs> but no, I was about
1: to say, a lot of undercurrent in the commission was the toxic environment in yeah. the workplace, essentially.
0: Yeah, yeah. The, the, there were a huge number of, of very senior public servants doing everything they could... To lead people, to give people, to give the ministers the, the answers that they wanted in cases like this, and to tell Out them what they want to do. fear,
1: or brown nosing, or
0: <laughs> it's. I mean, it's hard to say. I, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to talk to their to their motivations. Yeah, yeah. But but for certainly, it was definitely professionally convenient to give people the advice that they were wanting to get.
2: Well, I, th- I think what's really interesting with the Rochelle Miller interview, especially the the one on Seven AM with Rick Morton this morning, was she really was able to reflect on what it was about this office that made her behave this way. And um, hers is a very particular case, um, but she said everybody in the office was being bullied you know Mm. it was a very intense workplace he was a very demanding boss bit of a micromanager um and so yeah it did sound like at least in the case of this particular office Mm. uh, completely driven by the whims of this sort of power-hungry narcissistic politician whose entire focus was on himself and how to make himself look good in this and how to get a promotion out of this Um,
0: and it worked
1: yeah, it did it to sure a degree. Did. for a while. I mean, she did also. She did say that she did try and push back a couple of times, but was put in, was in no uncertain terms put right back into her place and realised that the the best way to 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 deal was to go along with it. I mean, you can you can hold that up for criticism. I mean, another mm. thing that she said was you should have empathy as a media advisor, but it makes your job harder.
0: Mm. Yeah,
1: and I just think, well, when you're working in the Department of Human Human service, but I think mean, yeah. that's the thing,
2: these, some some of these portfolios are just kind of a stepping stone um, to mm. politicians, like Liberals especially, hate being in there because it's seen as like a place where you can't really do anything and, you know, you're just like giving people money. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. And so, <laughs> the, yeah, well, the
0: yeah wow. there, were, there was yeah. no
2: empathy there because that – that didn't mean anything to them. It was kind of a mm. department they wished didn't exist. I, I, and think. I think,
0: and it also comes back to this idea of the kind of the degradation of, of politics in general. I mean, particularly under the, the Morrison government, where, and this was this was you saw it in every single issue. Was nothing was ever. Uh, motivated by a policy outcome or by the greater good it was every single thing under Morrison was treated as a media issue to be managed to be stage managed you could see that throughout all of COVID throughout the bushfires everything was messaging uh, Mm -hmm. and it was shameful how often that worked um, and the idea of um and this and I think this this com- this is the inevitable um, kind of outcome of the political class now being essentially people who have never had a job that wasn't in preparation for for office the idea that there would be like you know and it, it it's it's sort of up until the 80s it was quite normal or it was expected almost that Someone who went into politics would have had at least one normal person's job before they did that, regardless of the side of politics they came from. Whereas that is now—I mean, I think you could probably count it on one hand how many people have genuinely lived anything approaching what we would consider Mm. a normal life. That wasn't just—I worked as a consultant, or I worked—I was a high-level union official. Yeah,
2: and I think I think what what's interesting with Miller, and again, you're not going to hear this from anyone else, but she says that she has since learnt empathy
0: yeah exactly because of
2: what happened to her because mm. she's now yeah. had her own mental health struggles and faced unemployment and um yeah mm. she, she's fallen she, on hard times and now suddenly she understands but most people working in you know media advising positions um whether for you know ministers or mps or departments haven't necessarily had those life experiences haven't necessarily been on job
1: seeker um and yeah lack that human touch yeah yeah
0: yeah but and, and
1: then, uh, to me that shows an absolute disconnect between mm. your ambition to be in politics and what you are actually doing yes. you're voted mm. in by you know you're representing a whole community of people you shouldn't have to have their lived experience to have empathy no, yeah. for the living situation it, i know Absolutely it, it, it not. It I mean, it like... should be the most prime fundamental kind of job requisite
0: i know it's i mean i feel like some sort of Awful old hippie saying this. But it's like yeah, isn't it supposed to be a call to public service? Isn't there yeah, supposed to be some yeah. kind of idea of a of a greater good that you kind of <laughs> subsume yourself and try and serve? Um Yeah, and then you sa- say that and you go, Of course not. No, no, it's it's a job now that you kind of that you get you get you know, someone like uh, Angus Taylor who just it just seems like he has kept being pushed into different rooms mm. and being like <laughs> told, well, now this is your job. Like.
2: Well, um you know, I think Alan Todd has had his own mental health battles himself now. I think he took some leave. Uh, last year during the whole sort of Rochelle uh-huh. Miller allegation yes, so yes. maybe he's he's obviously stood down now over uh not because of Robertette but you know around the time of the Royal Commission he stood down so mm-hmm. you convenient. know maybe he's ready to come back now that he's experienced <laughs> yeah. some real human I mean,
0: emotion his, his response which sounded like it was written by a lawyer with a gun to their head, Mm. didn't give the the strong impression of someone who'd reflected (laughs) on what they'd done. No, his
1: testimony in the Royal Commission did not um, add colour. There is a a biolet. Oh, no, there was one other thing that I wanted to ask your guys' thoughts about. Um, It was a really uh, robust report. A lot of people um, said that for Royal Commission reports, actually um, a lot of uh, sort of colour and thought had gone into this report but there was one section that uh the sealed section mm. that no one could get at um which is supposed to uh include recommendations about any um criminal and civil charges that should be brought as a result of uh, the royal commission and its findings what are your thoughts on that
2: I mean, I've I've seen a little bit of criticism of the sealed section. Um, and Anthony Wheely, um who's yeah, a, a yeah, former yeah. judge and and now sort of a anti corruption campaigner, um, part of part of a few organisations, he was saying in the media today that by having it sealed, it sort of taints everyone mm. um, because you don't know who's actually been referred for either criminal charges or to the National Anti Corruption Commission. Um, and so, yeah, it kind of it implicates everyone by not naming anyone, but by the same token, I think if if having it sealed and having these names under wraps, um, you know, increases the chance of a prosecution or, or yeah, a finding, yeah. um, then, you know, I think it, it's important that we do whatever is needed to bring justice to victims of this scheme but um you know if if criminal charges are not going ahead then please like
1: open it up do you know who does have access to that sealed section because some ministers have come out and said you know as far as they're aware there are no they're not there are no no charges you know they're not included well
2: i I, i'm fairly sure the Coalition doesn't have access to it, um, <laughs> so they're
1: just making assumptions. And I've even Great heard some
2: Labor there. ministers say they don't. I, Linda Burney said on the weekend she didn't have access to it. Um, so I, you know, I think it's a very small group.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, I think it, I, I, I would just sort of echo what Rachel says: is that I think it always looks slightly bad in the um, in the course of sort of any kind of like, for example, you know, um, suppression orders against someone like George Pell and things like that, uh, where there is a bit of a sense that. Um, that somehow the, the wool is being pulled over the public's eyes or that there is some kind of something nefarious going on. There is sometimes a case for this stuff being kept public, well, sorry, get private, for the the course of justice to run its course and for people to be prejudiced if they are ever going to face kind of criminal charges. Mm.
1: Um, By-election, it's kind of like the most tepid by-election in the history of by-elections yeah this weekend
0: yeah it's an interesting one I mean I think um the my, my colleague Anton Nilsson wrote a piece kind of looking to it because I think there was a bit of a sense I mean we've been talking about an and of course he, he recently quit Parliament and then unthinkably for the first time um, since just after the first world war uh, a a um, opposition party lost a by-election to the the, the government, um, and the, and and the liberals actually lost Athene. I think a lot of people were like, "Oh, you know." The people assumed, especially given that, that um, Stuart Robert was someone who was sort of swept up in the robo debt kind of uh, crisis, uh, that maybe this could this could happen again. And the, the reporting that, that that Anton has done, even with with Labour people, they're like. Nah, not happening we're not we're not getting that one this is not this is not the same situation they're not th- 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 something like Robodet is not going to be dominating the thoughts of voters in and, and they're going to be much more about you know th- much more about cost of living and the kind of just day to day sort of stuff something like Robodet would be probably f- pretty marginal in terms of, of that stuff labor-, d- labor door knockers have been saying no one's bringing that up no one's saying I don't like the liberal party because of what they did with Robodet. so and there's a very big margin to overcome as well yeah, yeah and okay. I mean
2: it's a it's a very different kind of seat. Um, I, I will say I've I've paid very little attention to Fadden, even though my job is to cover politics on a daily basis, because it doesn't, you know, it it it's so, so unlikely to go. Um, mm. And Aston was this big test for the Liberal Party. It was framed as this test, you know, mm. it, it, because it was competitive. And there was this idea that if they lost that one, then it would mean something. And we would... Have a conversation about what the Liberal Party's doing wrong, and and of course <laughs> and that conversation did not come. No, then... I mean, yeah.
0: The, the one thing that is notable, though, that is Stuart Robert, the the previously sitting member for that area, has been kept well away from the hustings. Mm. So obviously they must have some view that he is slightly tainted and that he's not slightly
1: good. tainted. Well,
0: but even with the, even with the, even within the, an electorate that doesn't really worry about that stuff, they mm. obviously went. He's not box office this he? We might just keep him away.
2: Uh, I did hear um, Peter Dutton say today to reporters um, that you know, the voters of Fadden looking forward, not backwards. And oh, it, I saw that, um, yeah. It sort of made me think of that, that Simpsons meme. <laughs> yeah, forever um, twirling towards
0: yeah. freedom. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Just ludicrous politics speak.
1: Triple R. Now, heading over to the UK, um, no-one ever thought that uh, UK tabloids had reformed in any way, (laughs) (laughs) but we've sort of had another example of how kind of vicious their bite could be in the last couple of weeks with um, a pretty salacious story that came out in The Sun uh, initially um, anonymising the subject, a big-time presenter at the BBC was all that they would say, Um, but it was um, detailing some kind of criminal activity and it was typical sun territory. Uh, Charlie, can you tell us more about it?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one. So this is uh, obviously The the Sun, which is one of the – I believe it's still the most – most widely read newspaper in the uk it's one of uh news corps uh british tabloids um and i think yeah it's an interesting one i mean the the part of the the parallel with australia is that if we think that the attacks on the abc from Murdoch media is uh, rough you you know you should see what what happens in a slightly more supercharged kind of tabloid uh market like the uk As, as you as you say they um They reported last Friday that, at the time, an unnamed uh, presenter had... allegedly um, paid for sexual images tens of thousands of pounds from a 17 year old, uh, something that, that if it was true um, would attract criminal charges and potentially potentially jail time um, the, the age of consent is 16 in the UK and Wales but but in terms of um, sexual imagery and them being shared they treat everyone under under 18 as, as a child um, so, so very serious allegations at the time and this of course set off a uh, huge swirl of, of speculation about, about who it was and similar to what you
1: were saying in terms of keeping that sealed section confidential and and not under, not letting people know who might um, be at the receiving end of charges around the Robertett Royal Commission. A lot of big time BBC celebrities, yeah, well, well, were incorrectly
0: named and mm. and, and were sort of doing
1: a yeah doing yeah. a reverse Spartacus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And and, and you but know, one of them ri-
1: did say, like, whoever it is, can you come forward? Yeah, yeah. You your, know, your, your
0: colleagues are suffering. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, but then immediately, kind of uh, some some gaps or some questions kind of were raised about the question. The the um, the young person in question Uh, the the story was based on anonymous quotes from the mother and stepfather of a young person claiming these things had happened and that that, uh, the young person was addicted to crack cocaine at the time and that's what they were using their money for and and that they had taken it to the the BBC and nothing had been done Uh, the young person in question on the Friday night it was was published during the day on Friday on the Friday night the young person in question put out a statement through their lawyer saying, "This is all rubbish. Nothing inappropriate or illegal happened between me and the, and the person that, that is the subject of this report." Um, and the, the police have investigated it. And, and as of Wednesday, they announced that they had found no no evidence of any kind of criminal wrongdoing. Um, at the same time, though, there's been more stories coming out. Some of them, via, most of them, via the Sun. They um, they claimed that someone had connected with this, again still unnamed at the time, presenter uh, over a dating app and had sort of hinted that they might basically out them, and received a volley mm. of, of abuse and invective in response. Um, they also found another person who claimed that they had had a, a creepy conversation with him on Instagram um, when they were when they were seventeen, uh, and the, the the BBC themselves were launching an investigation into him and found that there had been at least one other person who. Had said that they had received um, kind of inappropriate messages from this person. On the Wednesday, uh, it was revealed that it was Hugh Edwards, who was a who's a veteran BBC and a very well respected broadcaster, the guy in- that announced the the death of the Queen, for example. That's the obvious one to go to in terms of his standing.
1: But the way that it was revealed was quite interesting because his wife put out a statement, um, mm-hmm. and it was kind of tragic, really.
0: Yeah, basically saying he's he's in hospital now, he's got very, very severe mental health issues and um, he will respond to all of this at some stage but, um, you know, I, when he feels well enough to do it.
2: I mean, I thought what was really interesting today with that statement, and that that's kind of when I tuned into this story mm. because I don't necessarily pay attention to UK tabloids, <laughs> um, but the, the public outpouring of sympathy for him, um, obviously this was reported in an incredibly unethical way um, Mm. and, you know, what you expect basically um, from the Murdoch media. But, you know, I can't help but think like something untoward did happen here. It was terribly reported. Uh, It kind of, for me, um, brought to mind, and they're not parallel cases, but the way the Daily Telegraph here um, treated the um, Jeffrey Rush allegations Mm -hmm. really butchered them um, with that, that King Lear front page that they ended up going down for defamation yeah, for. Yeah, down, yeah. Um, and really, you know, what should have been handled sensitively was handled very, very poorly. Mm. And, um, and betrayed
0: the confidences of someone who had allegedly been, been absolutely, Absolutely.
2: Um, yeah, yeah and, and just, you know, he, he – I'm not going to make any comment on the – uh, veracity of the allegations against Jeffrey yeah. Rush, but Triple can't afford <laughs>
1: defamation <laughs> charges. Um, but you know, uh, Rachel,
2: to have have um tabloid media basically take what is uh, potentially uh, a serious issue, and I think I think there is questions for Hugh Edwards yeah. to answer. And, and they may not be criminal. I think mm. we've established now that they're not criminal. Um, but, but there's clearly a, a abuse power imbalance power. here going on. Um, but the way it's been handled has just meant we can't really have that conversation. Mm. And the public outpouring of, of of left-wing people on Twitter defending Hugh Edwards made me a little uncomfortable. And that's interesting.
0: Yeah, there was um, – I, I mean, I, 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 I completely I agree with that. I mean, I think, yes – as you say it's it's it doesn't have to reach the level of criminality for something to be in the public interest and for something to be you know untoward and possibly inappropriate again we don't know the veracity of any of this stuff that is being reported but but it is worth stating that if there's any truth to this there is something that is possibly very troubling there but yes yeah, someone like owen jones who's obviously a um, a very high profile writer for places like the guardian kind of implying that it's none of anyone's business mm. and it's only a messy private life and i think there is some truth yeah. to that i think we shouldn't weaponize people's personal lives and against them i don't think that's necessarily fair but I suspect that the same level of unequivocal support would not be offered were it, say, Boris Johnson, who has been accused no. of doing something of this sort. But
1: also, um, to, to Rachel's point, if someone is in a really high-profile position and using that to take advantage yeah, yeah. Of, of vulnerable people, 100% that should be – not. it's not necessarily – Every, it's not necessarily in the public interest to let all, every single sort of detail be made public, but mm-hmm. it certainly should be held up for scrutiny. And, and
2: you've got to wonder why a serious media organisation didn't look into this. And and look, I mean, the, this story is quite sorted and, mm. and the fact that it was the, the parents that were making the claim, not the... Yeah. The young yeah. fascinating question. And, uh, yeah. But it's but very, if there it's was very a pattern sun, of Everything here. about it is sun. But if there was a pattern of behaviour here, why wasn't it picked up sort of around the time of the Me Too movement mm. or...?
0: Yeah, or, or I mean, the, the, the classic reference in the UK for this is Operation U-Tree, which was the police investigation that review, revealed decades of high-profile figures in the BBC mm. basically being predators and pedophiles and quite prolific ones, and that's the the... the the, the the line that they're trying to draw uh. when they make these sort of accusations is remember what happened there. Mm-hmm. So the the idea that they were able to let this one slide and not thoroughly investigate it when it was first brought to them uh, does again raise some very serious questions.
1: That is our time. Um, thank you so much for joining us this week, Rachel. Pleasure. We will see you again soon, no doubt.
0: And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favorite podcast platform,
1: and you can follow us on Twitter at Nad at Lily Juice,
0: and at The Shuffle Diary.
1: You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via on-demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content. Like this.